Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've heard it before, but we're hearing it more and more now. Uh, people are saying that the Trump regime is cracking, toppling, breaking up. We're seeing light at the end of the tunnel, if indeed most of us see it as a tunnel. Uh, the end of Donald J. Trump. Uh, one guy who's come out very clearly in saying this is my old friend Franklin Furr. He is staff writer for The Atlantic, uh, a best-selling author of books about everything from the internet to global football. Uh, Frank, the Trump regime is beginning to topple. Are you sure? Because I hope you're right. <laughs> of course, I'm not sure. Um, and I, I appreciate your opening because I, too, scoff at all these pieces that one's seen over the course of the last couple of years predicting the imminent demise of Trump. And um, so when I, I I actually didn't even intend to, to sit, sit down and write this piece, I just was watching the protests in the streets, the Black, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, the uh, the reaction to the the death of George Floyd, and as it unfolded, and as Trump reacted the way that he did to it, um, I, you know, one couldn't help but but notice the way in which um, important allies of Trump were turning on Trump. And as I was watching this process, I said, "This this seems distantly familiar. Like, what is what is the historic echo?" and a lot of people were talking about 1968 and, you know, as, as the, the protests first erupted and there was violence and there was looting, um, I could see why one would see the resonances with, with 1968. But as the protests kind of took their turn and as it was clear that they were overwhelmingly peaceful and as it was clear that they had staying power and you saw that they were getting these just highly unlikely allies in the form of um, uh, former Trump administration officials and um, and uh, and uh, corporate America kind of seemed to be rallying around the cause. It felt to me like what we were witnessing was less like 1968 and more like the democratic revolutions that we saw we see we've seen abroad where autocrats have toppled in places like Serbia or Ukraine, or as they did in various parts of the Arab Spring. And um, there, there was, there was a, there, that seemed to me the, the better analogy to what we were witnessing. And that's the thing that makes me feel optimistic. But, you know, I should be, I'll be clear that this was, this is like a real tenuous um, optimism that, um, that Trump just has this almost, um, uh, you know, he, he, he scrambled uh, like my own 
um, faith in myself and my own ability to predict political events. So every time I, you know, every time I kind of swear off uh, making political predictions and then venture back into that terrain, I do so with um, with with this kind of um, nagging sense that I'm going to have egg on my face someday. Yeah, and you mentioned Serbia, the Ukraine, and and Tunisia, and and none of those revolutions were very successful. Uh, some of them have resulted in even more dramatic counter revolution. Right. I mean, this is um, uh, you know, it's it's these these analogies are imprecise. Um, but what I what I was hoping to capture was kind of that um, the kind of excitement and euphoria and the sense of a society that had been seemingly divided, almost clicking into something not quite lockstep, but a consensus forming. And um, that that's that's a, that's what I what I hope to 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 capture. I mean, there's all the analogies that I invoke in that that piece are kind of wildly imprecise. I mean, for one thing, um, liberal democracy is just much stronger in the United States than in those countries that I was describing for another. I think that, um, that whatever the fate of the Trump regime is, um, it's kind of, it's going to be settled at the ballot box. It's not going to be settled. It's not going to be settled in the streets. There's not going to be an American version of the Maidan, which toppled, Viktor Yanukovych, um, and and in some ways, I'm and that's of course in Ukraine. In Ukraine, right? And I think we should be grateful that um, that all these events are are happening with an election in sight. I mean, I think that that um, that alleviates any sort of other question about an extra constitutional settlement to our uh, political woes. So before we get to that election, which I know you're in some ways, ambivalent and nervous about. Um, you mentioned in your piece, and I should date it, this, this interview will go out uh, probably on around July, uh, June 9th or 10th on, on Lit Hub. Uh, your piece is entitled, Your Atlantic Peace, The Trump Regime is Beginning to Topple. It was published on June 6th. You say that Twitter's decision to caveat uh, some of uh, Trump's tweets was at a hinge moment. But again, Frank, we've been hearing about hinge moments now for three years or more. What, why, why is the, the, the Twitter decision on Trump's tweet such a big deal? Well, I think uh, it was a hinge moment because there was a chain of events that we can already look back and describe and see as kind of a matter of historical narrative that when, when Twitter, Twitter, Twitter's decision comes very relatively early in the protest. And I think that what I was describing is how one company's one 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 company's resistance to Trump empowers other companies to take that position, empowers um, public officials to take positions. And you can't you can't say that the causality is precise, but I think that Twitter did help set the tone for um, much of the public reaction um, uh, in the very early stages of the protest, where they said that Trump was Trump was was crossing a line. He was he was threatening physical violence, and um, uh, you know, so much has unfolded since Twitter 
has 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 done that and it it in whatever the political upshot is of George Floyd's death um it's clear that the, it's had tremendous cultural ramifications um you know for better or for worse you know all the way through the kerfuffle at the New York Times that resulted in James Bennett resigning and um uh, like there, there's no doubt that we're living within a very intense, intense moment. And I think that, um, that that Twitter decision was an, a, a very important plot point in this. Uh, and the, uh, and some of the stuff in the New York times suggests it's maybe it's not the, the Trump regime that's beginning to topple, but it's the American meritocratic regime. Is that a better way of describing it? What's actually going on in America today? It's interesting. I mean, I think that um, I think it's it, it'll be hard to know exactly um, what's happening. You know, politics is easier to see in the moment than um, than culture. That um, you know, I, it it feels to me like there are important parallels between what's happening now in media and and, and corporate world and in and, and, and even in of everyday social mores and attitudes towards the what happened during the Me Too movement, um, where um, you have kind of a belated, uh, a belated awakening to deeply entrenched um, uh, social problem that society kind of deals with uh, in a um, in a very emotional, angry. Uh, spurt that results in a lot of things happening very, very quickly. Um, you, you, I mean, you, you talked about the um, uh, the end of meritocratic America. Um, I mean, I think that that I don't I don't know how much I would connect that to the events of of recent weeks. I do think that um, you know that you do have this this kind of longer nagging sense that there's something something wrong in the way in which uh wealth and talent what wealth wealth and opportunity has been distributed in american society and that the the byways that a couple generations had relied on to distribute that which um presented themselves as being kind of fair and based on talent and hard work you know i think there there's there's kind of a whole uh, mythology there that's been uh, punctured repeatedly over the course of the last couple of years. And, and maybe this is a plot point in that as well. And meanwhile, if, if indeed the Trump regime is beginning to topple, we have Uncle Joe Biden waiting in, in, <laughs> on, on the sidelines. Um, you're cautiously optimistic, uh, or I'm Perhaps I'm putting words in your mouth about Biden. You you noted uh, last week in a, in another very intriguing piece in the Atlantic that the Biden's changed for the better. That he is indeed reacting to a world which is profoundly changing. Uh, do you a week after writing that do you still stick to that position? Yeah, I mean I think that uh, you know uh, what I was arguing was that Biden Biden's weaknesses and strengths as a politician are one and the same, um, which is that uh, he's not a conviction politician. He's a politician who seems to channel the zeitgeist and at various, and, and 
it, and he channels the institutions that he's a part of. And um, when he's channeling a zeitgeist that's fundamentally um, uh, unequal or or has uh, certain terrible assumptions built into it, then that's his weakness. But at a moment like this, he seems to be quite good at kind of he, he's you know he's 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 an empathic guy. He's um, he's somebody who wants to be liked, and so um, he's kind of it's you know he sees history turning and he wants to be on the right side of that and he's somebody you know if the protests were about um pushing one of one of the ultimate goals of a protest is to push politicians and he's shown himself a politician who's willing to be pushed but you talk about channeling the zeitgeist um we're talking about a moment in American history where everyone realizes there's a need, or not everyone, many people believe that there's a need for fundamental cultural, economic, political uh, reform. If the system itself isn't working. So channeling the zeitgeist simply means repeating what people are saying in the street is as if Biden's just articulating the, the happy talk of his, his, his marketing people. Uh, yeah. Where's the evidence that Biden actually gets the need to fundamentally change America? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, I would be, I would be hard pressed to present you with that evidence. Um, I don't think it exists. I think, I think you you could take you could take something like the issue of police brutality and. Um, you, you take the kind of the moral questions at, that are at the heart of the protests that have emerged in um, uh, since since the death of George, the, the murder of George, George Floyd. And I'd say that uh, Biden's shown that he he gets he gets he gets the he gets that there's unjust there's injustice and that it needs to be changed. Um but of course, he's not a radical. And, um, you know, when the question of whether the police should be defunded comes up, I think he comes up with like a pretty, a pretty politically solid answer, which is that he wants to, he wants to, he wants fundamental reform, but he's not willing to go all the way um, in the direction of the protesters. And that's the the tension that you see between um, between a very active and effective movement and a political ally where the political ally needs to be pushed and is willing to go some distance, but it's going to resist. And so you need to have that kind of um, symbiosis in order to get reform done. But I mean, you're talking about fundamental reform across many sectors of American life and, um, you know, all I could say is that he's a very different politician than he was during the Obama era on all of these questions. And he's 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 gone many clicks further to the left than uh, than the guy who was Barack Obama's second chair not so many years ago. You mentioned earlier that ultimately all this is going to get resolved uh, at the ballot box, we hope, in November in America. Uh, but you're quite suspicious and, and, and nervous about this. Your June cover story of The Atlantic uh, is about Putin being well on his way to stealing the next election. Uh, I think that the title of 
the magazine piece was the 2016 election was just a dry run. So for all the crisis of, or this endless crisis of Trump and the the rebirth of, or the re-rebirth of Joe Biden, how can we be sure that 20, 2020 won't simply be like 2016, only on steroids? Um, well, that's what makes me nervous. I mean, if, if right now we're looking at polls that show Joe Biden um, with anywhere between a seven and a 14 point lead. And I think if the lead is that substantial, um, there's very little that can be done by, by Vladimir Putin or anyone else to alter the shape of the election. But, you know, America is a very, very divided place and every, even, even elections that are, um, that are blowouts in our country tend to, tend to be closer to five-point elections. And then when you're dealing with extremely thin margins in battleground states like Wisconsin, um, you know, you, you know, even if, even if it's a five-point election, uh, election nationally, it could be, you know, that, that, that could be settled by a couple thousand votes. And when the margins are extremely thin, um, the whole legitimacy of the election is cast is cast into doubt because um, Americans from both political parties have, um, you know, I'm not saying that these are equivalent concerns, but they they both have concerns about the integrity of the process. And so, if you were to look at that type of scenario where um, the election comes down to a couple thousand votes in in Wisconsin, we know that the Russians have been you know, mapping um, the electoral systems of states, looking for vulnerabilities in, um, in in the electronic parts of those voting systems. They've been successful in probing and hacking those systems. We know from countries like Ukraine that uh, the Russians have um, tried to influence the results and in credibility of elections there. So um, in Ukraine in 2014, the Russians posted, uh, you know, tried to post fake results on um, the election commission's website, and they did manage to get those results published. Um, links to those results, fake results, published in various news sources, and you know, it's just imagine if, um, if say the Russians or other hackers were able to post fake results on the Wisconsin Board of Elections website and. Just given how suspicious we are as a society, and given that there are Twitter demagogues who would make hay over that, um, you know, you could see how even even a tiny successful intervention from abroad could cause incredible chaos here. Do you think that either a Trump victory or a, or a Biden victory um, could come without the other side screaming? illegality and perhaps even a slide into some sort of violence after the election? My sense, my instinct is, is that if the margin's wide enough, then that won't be the case. But, um, uh, you know, nerve, the, this country's nerves are so jangled and um, the political violence is in the air. And um, I do fear for that period between November and January and worry that we could see civil discord on, um, 
on a scale that we haven't really witnessed in a long time. And it just feels like the events of the last couple of months um, are, are a preview. I mean, it, it, just the, 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 it's hard to erase the images of, um, of, of burly guys with guns showing up at the state houses of America. And, um, uh, you know, history suggests that, um, that this type of political violence is totally, that type of political violence I'm talking about is, is, is totally possible. And uh, there's, there's political science, um, that shows that um, that this country has been tilting in that sort of direction, where politics is breaking down, where um, violence that wasn't thinkable decades ago is suddenly thinkable. Terrifying. Perhaps uh, your 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 pessimism is derived from the fact that I know you're you're on retreat uh, somewhere near Gettysburg, Frank. Finally, what should people be reading to make sense of our current moment, perhaps something historical, perhaps something fictional? What are the books that are on your mind at the moment? Well, I was going uh, to, I, when I, 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 when I heard the question at first, I was just looking for a suggestion to read and I was going to propose something entirely <laughs> escapist, which I was reading because um, I don't know. Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll pivot. I was going to suggest a book by one of my favorite author, nonfiction writers, uh, Bill Buford, um, uh, and I'm going to make the pivot very, very subtly from what I had been thinking, which was, he's got a wonderful book, book about French food that's out called dirt, um, to the book that he, uh, his first book, which we were talking about violence and, uh, among the thugs, right? Among the thugs, uh, kind of, which is, uh, he was a, he was an American who went to live in Britain and ended up insinuating himself among um, English football hooligans at the height of English football hooliganism. And, um, you know, I think it's just an apt suggestion. Just, it, it, it's one of the great, in, in my opinion, one of the great um, uh, immersive nonfiction uh, tales and a book that even, even despite its age holds up really well, but also just shows how in a seemingly, in, in, a, in, a, in a liberal democratic society, you can have pockets of violence um, that just fester and sit around, and authorities have um, have limited ability to control it until they um, until they really prioritize it and set about controlling it. Um, so that's my that was my artful segue. Yeah, it's an interesting book uh, among the thugs. Uh, Buford was uh, a Manchester United follower, I think. I know, Frank, you've you've written about football quite a lot. You wrote a, a best-selling book about it. The only unfortunate thing about all that is, from what I remember from previous conversations, you're an Arsenal fan, or you were an Arsenal fan. I hope you still aren't. I hope you've given that one up. Have you? No, 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 no. It's um, it's as it's become harder, a harder and harder position to sustain. Given their performance, I cling to that identity even more resolutely. Well, I have to say this very clearly. I'll say it publicly. You are the first and the last Arsenal fan ever to appear on my show. Uh, Well, in that case, I'm honored. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com 
where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.